and that's the way it is and that's the way it's always been and why should we change it and then as you say a, a research fellow bright-eyed bushy tails turns up without a cardiology training number and tells people no no it's fine just send the phone <laughs> welcome to the super podcast designed for medical trainees looking to take time out of training for a clinical research fellowship in the uk each week we'll bring you a 15-minute discussion with a leading expert in the UK medical research process or from a successful research fellow sharing what they wish they'd known before they'd taken their time out. I'm your host, Nikhil Alawalia, and on behalf of the British Junior Cardiology Association and with support from the BHF Clinical Research Collaborative, we're proud to bring you this series. So today I'm pleased to be joined by Dr Andrew Chapman, who's a specialty registrar and clinical lecturer in cardiology at the University of Edinburgh. Andrew undertook his PhD in cardiovascular science with a focus on the use of cardiac biomarkers for the assessment and diagnosis of patients with myocardial injury and infarction. His work has resulted in a number of high-impact, practice-changing papers in journals such as Circulation, as well as going on to win the AHA Young Investigator Award in 2017. So we're pleased to be joined by Andrew today. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thanks for the invitation. What I wanted to do to start with is ask you to share with the listeners a little bit about your background leading up to the time when you came to do your PhD research, so what you'd been doing before then. Sure, so I've trained in Scotland really since medical school. I, I studied at the University of Aberdeen and undertook foundation years in Ragmore Hospital and then in Aberdeen and then moved to Edinburgh for core medical training. And during that time, I really enjoyed my exposure to cardiology and to emergency medicine, actually, um, right from the start of foundation training. And in core medical training, I started to work a bit closer with the cardiology department here in Edinburgh and became involved in a couple of research projects with, uh, at that time, Dr. Nick Mills, who had an interest in cardiac troponin, as well as a number of other senior registrars working with him at the time. And it was really that involvement at the start of my CT1 year that led to a continued attachment to the research group and the opportunity to undertake a dedicated period of research came up at that time. So it, it, it allowed me to have a chance to think about whether I wanted to commit to that research, but also really importantly to think about how I might apply for funding and what the funding opportunities would be to do a dedicated PhD as a, a pre-ST3 trainee with an interest in cardiology. So really that's, that's how I came to, to the point of, of doing a PhD at the time I did. Had you done any research prior to that? I had done some research. I'd done an undergraduate uh, BSc in haematology, which by all accounts was modestly successful. Uh, some things went well, some things did not go well. And although I enjoyed the theory of research, I must be honest, I didn't really enjoy my actual research dissertation, which I did. And then laterally, I had done some clinical practice research in the emergency department, looking at how we assess patients with chest pain. I did that in my fifth year and uh, FY1 year. And subsequently, I, I became involved in a couple of case reports during foundation years. And I think also we did, I did do one research project with uh, colleagues in Aberdeen, looking at intranasal diamorphine use in, in pediatrics, but really quite a, quite a generic quite a generic series of, of research projects which gave me some exposure to how you would conduct good clinical research but not really specific into cardiology. So you're at the end of your CT2 year or perhaps even partway through your CT1 year and you decide you want to do this PhD what was the next steps that you took to go towards that? 
So I've been working with uh, Professor Mills and colleagues on setting up the historic trial, which was actually just published about two months ago now. And this this must have been back in 2015. And uh, we were we just applied for funding and the study was looking at the implementation of a, a pathway for using high sensitivity troponin in the emergency department to discharge patients with very low concentrations upfront after a single test in some cases. And on the basis of that, we'd, we'd worked well together already. And we were thinking about what other areas we were interested in that we might explore. And this concept of type two myocardial infarction has been, had been around since about 2011, 2012. And I was quite interested, having seen in practice the number of patients that came in with elevated troponin concentration without a clear cardiac primary diagnosis. I was interested to learn that there hadn't been any prospective mechanistic studies in this area at all. So. Uh, we sat down on a number of occasions and fleshed out what would eventually be my BHF clinical research training fellowship application, uh, which is essentially a, a framework which gives you funding for a, for up to three years or possibly an extension now, but certainly in my case, three years of, of research funding. So salary support uh, in addition to funding for clinical studies to support a PhD program. Generally, you're looking at something in the region of 250 to 300 thousand pounds which is a significant investment yeah. on the part of the bhf so to do this you really have to have a very clear hypothesis and a very deliverable series of studies and in my case it was the demand mi study um, which we which we designed and uh, applied for funding for so uh was it dr mills or was it yourself who initially said hey i think you will need to do a phd to see this through or where, where did the idea of that come from yeah, so I knew I wanted to do research at some point. So um, I suppose coming down to Edinburgh and working in the cardiology department, I saw that certainly the majority of the registrars that train in Edinburgh under, uh, under the uh, supervision of Professor Newby or Professor Mills will do a, a dedicated period of research and the, the majority will do a, a PhD. So, it, you know, it's certainly when I came here as a CT2 and I I thought I wanted to try and stay in cardiology in Scotland. I felt this was a really good opportunity. So it certainly came from me, uh, the, the the one and the desire to do a PhD. There was no there was no pressure from from either Professor Mills okay. or Professor Newby for me to do so. Um, and compared to a, a lot of the other fellows who we've spoken to who took time out of training partway through their cardiology uh, training number, you obviously took it out at a much earlier stage. Cass, did, did you feel that there were particular challenges associated with that? Did you feel ready at that time? So certainly I felt that the, the opportunity that was there for, for the research project was a very good one. Uh, I had already experienced working with the team, working with the data, and I was more confident, therefore, that I would be able to deliver a study with that research group and a PhD with that research group. So certainly that was a strength, but yeah. there were a number of things which which I suppose caused me a, a bit of anxiety at the time. So primarily, I was embarking on three years of no clinical work, and that's all I had really known since I finished medical school. I was uh, potentially setting myself to do a, uh, setting myself up to do a PhD in cardiovascular science without a cardiology training number. And everybody in that position will always tell you, you'll be fine, you'll get your number in due course. But it's not always that simple when it's you that doesn't have the training number. So certainly that can cause some anxiety uh, and I'd be lying if I said it didn't. Yeah. 
Uh, so, so they were the main the main considerations. Obviously, once you are able to secure funding for your PhD, it's slightly different because all of a sudden you have a three year contract and and uh, and three years of funding in the one position in the one place. Which is, as a medical trainee, that's that was quite a, a unique experience. Yeah. Three years of potentially no night shifts, no weekends, no on calls unless I chose to do them. So it's a very different uh, very different job plan. Yeah. Uh, so let's touch uh, on that idea of the funding, because I think it was, I mean, even with a couple of years of cardiology under your belt, putting together a proposal and submitting it to a funder is difficult. Uh, how did you find that process with the level of clinical knowledge you had at that time? So I was really fortunate to have excellent supervision from Prof Mills and Prof Newby, uh, who really guided me through the process. And I think for anyone who's considering doing a PhD, you absolutely must get yourself a mentor who is hmm. willing to work hard for you in the same way that you are for them and, and certainly they both did for me so developing the proposal uh, I, I remember starting out by writing a review article uh, or preparing to write a review article under supervision and that was eventually published in heart but it, it, it led to a number of kind of doors opening for me because it was it was you know it was well thought out uh, we we really covered the area of type 2 myocardial infarction and myocardial injury which at that time was a hot topic and it still is in many ways and i think when it came to writing my bhf funding proposal having that knowledge was invaluable uh, and also in terms of understanding the literature understanding the gaps and where our study might fit in um, starting off with a review i would say it's a really really good idea uh, and a sensible thing to do before or during the time you're writing this kind of grant proposal yeah so it does sound like you had uh, really helpful uh, and supportive supervisors on board. Can, I, I wanted to explore how the other peers and cardiologists you encountered uh, looked upon you or, or, or the advice that they gave you when you were saying that you were leading or, or doing this work. Uh, did, did you encounter any sort of uh, re resistance or uh, off feelings from anyone? From the point of view of being a, a junior trainer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think as long as you're as long as you're making it clear that you're working under supervision and working with the support of other senior cardiologists around you, then then no, I, th I think generally people were quite supportive. I would say there were a couple of occasions where obviously what we were proposing in our, our chest pain pathway study was felt to be out there by some people. Um, you know, we, were, we had a system where patients were admitted for a peak troponin test and that's the way it is and that's the way it's always been and why should we change it and then as you say a, a research fellow bright-eyed bushy tails turns up without a cardiology training number and tells people no no it's fine just send them home <laughs> so yeah there's certainly there were a couple of conversations i can remember with probably more senior people um which which did lead to some interactions between my supervisors and others but you know, to deliver a clinical trial like that, you're always working as a team, I would say. And although I was doing a lot of the groundwork, I was very well supported by seniors um, who were involved in the study who would be happy to come along and, and, you know, do presentations as well as required or speak to speak to whoever else was required. And I would say the, the demand MI study, which I've not really talked about yet, so that's the study looking at the underlying mechanisms in type 2 myocardial infarction so it was a, a prospective cohort study where we had patients who underwent either invasive or ct coronary angiography and a cardiac mri scan 
And those that underwent an invasive coronary angiogram actually had OCT and FFR. Now you can imagine, and I and, and I can now see in hindsight, looking back, being a, uh, a, a clinical research fellow, walking along to the cath lab and saying, oh, hello, patient so-and-so has had a type 2 MI. I've actually recruited them to this study and they've read their patient information leaflet. Um, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind doing you know, three-vessel OCT and some FFR, yeah. would that be okay? Um, obviously, it wasn't quite like that and the, you know, the cath lab sessions where the patients were allocated, the clinicians were on board for the study, but certainly now, knowing what I do now, it's, it's a major undertaking for someone to do such invasive coronary investigations on patients who are sometimes frail or have renal impairment, for example. And so certainly the, that that is something which I've reflected on as a, you know, becoming a more senior trainee now is an interesting intervention. Throughout your PhD, you, you gained a huge amount of domain expertise and now coming back in to clinical training as a ST3, you awarded a number in clinical training. What did that feel like, I guess, with such a huge amount of knowledge uh, at that stage of your, your clinical training? Uh, I think intimidating is probably the honest answer. So I had done some medical registrar work during my three years of PhD, but you know, there's nothing like turning up as a medical registrar on call first day of ST3 to a new hospital where you hadn't worked before and to do general medicine, which you hadn't really done for a few years. So yeah. uh, th- that was that was quite tough. Um, and I think you do, get, you do get back into it quite quickly, um, but I don't know about you, but if I've been on holiday for two weeks and then I come back to work, I do sometimes feel a bit rusty and three years is a long time. So uh, there, there, there was a bit of anxiety, I suppose, uh, but I, I got back into it quite quickly. I, I think the, the important thing to understand, which I now again understand a bit better on reflection, is that the textbook cardiology knowledge and the academic research knowledge is very different to clinical practice. Yeah, I was very much starting with probably 12 months in total of SHO cardiology under my belt from from clinical work. But, you know, I'd never, I'd been in the cath lab a lot. I'd looked at an awful lot of OCT imaging and uh, FFR studies, and I'd looked at a lot of angiograms, but, you know, I'd never touched a manifold, never touched okay. a diagnostic catheter. And uh, I think day two or day three of ST3, I was in the cath lab, kind of starting from scratch. So they're definitely complementary skills and and on a kind of academic or textbook level, my knowledge was obviously pretty good for, for new SC3, but um, there's a lot of clinical cardiology out there, you know, including echo, basic, cath lab, uh, interpretation of other diagnostic imaging and the clinical, you know, the clinical practice of diagnosing heart failure, et cetera, from the end of the bed and using the stethoscope, looking at the JVP there's a number of different skills which you which you don't get during a PhD that you need to go back and, and relearn and hone when you start your clinical practice. So during this time, Andrew, who, who did you have uh, for support alongside your supervisors? Yeah, so I think uh, having a, a good set of, of peers around you at work is important. So other people who are doing research at the same time of you can be invaluable. But the, the most important thing really is, is, is your family um, and you know, I've had a, had a very supportive now wife uh, of a few years who's, who's put up with my research antics, which was, you know, often working reasonably late into the night during a PhD. So you need to make sure that your your work remains compatible with your own personal life and, and don't let it take over and make sure you keep up your own 
interests, be that you know sport, exercise, music, whatever it is that you have that helps you switch off. Uh, it's important to, to to keep that in mind, and uh, and hopefully your your supervisors will remind you of that as well because it is it can be a very stressful time doing a, a PhD research program. So do bear that in mind. So d- did you have a explicit chat with your partner about the time commitments and the amount of work you were going to? Ha- be you know considering putting into your PhD beforehand, or do you think it was something that, that they were just really accepting of as it changed throughout? Um, I think there was an awareness that that doing doing a period of, of PhD research is just often associated with you know a lot of hard work and and hard graft, as it were, because you're the one delivering the work. So so on a personal level, yes, uh, my wife certainly knew that. That it was going to be hard work. Um, we didn't have a family at the time, so that made things slightly easier. Yeah. I now have an 18, 19 month old son, and you know, having experienced a couple of COVID lockdowns for for two weeks prior to the introduction of lots of testing, I could not open my MacBook for for him wanting to close it. Uh, so, you know, I have a a new level of respect for for parents looking after children, trying to do research and clinical work at the same time because it's incredibly difficult. So that you know, it's it's a really important consideration. Is you know, is it realistic and it, and is it achievable, and um, to do this with your current situation? And I'm not saying I couldn't have done it. I, I could have done it, but I would have had to change the way I work definitely. Um, I would have had to be doing earlier mornings. I think um, you know, before the baby wakes up, and then trying to bring back the trying to rein in the late nights a little bit to make sure I still got some sleep because as you know, you don't always sleep overnight when you have small people in the house uh, and again I think that's another really good reason to have have a good mentor and it doesn't need to be your professor it might be someone who's done a PhD one or two years before you who you know is in a similar life situation to you to give you to give you their insights into into how best you can cope and devise strategies to to get through that that research time yeah absolutely great so speaking on that and to, to finish off, if you have, I'm sure there'll be a lot of trainees listening who are at that stage in their CT1, CT2 or IMT1, IMT2 now, who are thinking about whether they should do research uh, early on uh, prior to getting a number. Would you have any words of advice for those trainees who are considering it, um, uh, final messages that you'd want to leave them with? So I think the most important thing uh, is to work out what your priorities are. Um, I think if you're committed to a career in cardiology in the longer term, a PhD is not going to weaken your application at all. If anything, it's going to strengthen it. So although my PhD, probably the main things that came out of it were, you know, delivering papers and, and ultimately writing a thesis, uh, at the time of my application, I, I didn't have a thesis or a PhD award. Uh, so I didn't get any points for a PhD for my, for my NTN application. I had publications, uh, but I'd also spent the time to do some teaching because I was genuinely interested in it, not because it was a, a box tick, but you know, you have opportunities because you have time. Uh, so if you are going to do a PhD before you do apply for your number, make sure that you think about what time you have and what other opportunities there might be for you to do things that might make you a, a more well-rounded candidate. So do things you're interested in though, don't, don't do things for the sake of it. Um, so so teaching is a very important one, um, delivering delivering SSC or student selected projects as we call them in, in Edinburgh, they're, they're kind of medical student supervision research projects. 
they can be invaluable for you to to develop your skills as a supervisor but also to to deliver some teaching and some extra research and trying to get involved in in clinical teaching on the medical courses are is important uh, i think ultimately the decision about when you do a phd has to be a, a personal one and you need to be able to live with the, the slight uncertainty about where the jobs and where the national training numbers are going to be when you finish your PhD. And, you know, I, I can't not mention the changes in the curriculum, uh, which are happening at the moment. Uh, as you know, I'm on the BJCA um, Council and we're trying to forge a way for future trainees to get through their, their new curriculum for internal medicine, which will then lead to a new cardiology curriculum, possibly an ST8 year. And so there are going to be implications for people in the future in terms of length of potentially of length of training, but also the training structure and the involvement with general medicine as well. So I think I'd have a really good understanding of what that future curriculum is going to look like. And there are FAQ documents kind of available in BJC Air producing information about how that future curriculum might look. But you're committing yourself to, to three years of research, but you're then committing yourself to that future cardiology training number period and ultimately most likely a fellowship year as well once you see ct so so it's a very long road and you need to know that that's what you want to do uh, i would say before you before you set set foot on that path yeah great and we'll uh put the links to those faqs and information about training in the show notes but uh, andrew thanks so much again for taking the time to talk to me today uh have a nice day no problem thanks very much next time on the podcast it's one of the really cool things about doing research i mean you don't get this opportunity doing in clinical practice right you rarely get just uh, this sort of playground to uh, to explore your own ideas. Uh, I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Jafar Khan, who is currently a staff clinician at the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute in Washington. He's an interventional fellow at the MedStar Washington Hospital Center. And uh, prior to all of this, he was a cardiology registrar here in London, uh, working at St. Thomas's Hospital, uh, doing his research initially at King's College London. He went on to complete his PhD on novel transcatheter electrosurgical laceration of the heart leaflets to prevent blood flow obstruction from transcatheter heart valve implantation, which we'll hear a bit more about. He was awarded the BCS, the BCS Young Investigator Award in 2018 and has recently also been awarded the KCL Thesis Prize uh, for his PhD work.